When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Kurt Refsnyder. Kurt is a cycling coach and the founder of Bikepacking Roots, an organization that advocates for bikepacking and the environment. He's the only person to have won all three events in the Triple Crown of Bikepacking, and he recently became one of only a few people to have biked the entire Continental Divide Trail. It's a 3,300-mile route that stretches from Canada to Mexico. Thanks for joining me, Kurt. I'm happy to be here, Jeff. Thanks for the invitation. Well, congratulations on your finish. Are you glad glad to be off the trail after three months of riding? Yeah, it was such a relief to get you know most of the way through New Mexico and be like, I'm actually going to pull this off. This is actually going to work out. <laughs> And I wasn't tired of riding my bike at the end of the adventure, but my body was just worn down. And so it it Mm. felt really good to just not have to be moving every day and be on hard trail every day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of like excitement and anticipation and maybe even it's like a lot of fun at the beginning of the ride. But yeah, I mean, (laughs) does it kind of grind on you after a while and you start thinking, man, I want to just like sit on a couch. It went back and forth. Like there were there were quite a few highs and lows that were very much dictated by or driven by just how demanding and how hard sections of the trail were mm-hmm. and you know four or five days of some of the hardest bike packing i've ever done in a row which is completely wear me down and then if i'd have a few days to recover on some easier terrain or like i took a week off in teton valley a month in and uh then my head was so super excited to get back out there for more and yeah. it was kind of the same same through colorado that there were ups and downs and some of the time i was really excited for more and would actually opt to like add little sections in that i hadn't planned on riding just because i was feeling good and having a good time with it mm-hmm. uh, but then by new mexico it was like okay the weather's not cooperating anymore either it was rainy or it was super hot mm. i had a little case of giardia that kind of sapped my energy for a bit Ooh, and my body no and my body was just wearing down and so by then it was like okay I'm, I am looking forward to getting this done. I like being out here, but it's been a long, long trip. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So most people are familiar with the 2,700-mile Great Divide route that goes from Banff, Alberta to Antelope Wells, New Mexico. So how is the Continental Divide route that you rode different from that route? <laughs> well, the source of all the confusion in the world, it seems. So I ran yeah, into so many hikers yeah. out there who were like, oh, you're riding the Great Divide mountain bike route. And we're up on some, you know, super technical ridgeline single track. I'm like, no, mm-hmm. that's that's down in the valley below. <laughs> so the Great Divide Adventure Cycling's you know, iconic bikepacking route. I think it's probably, without a doubt, the most influential mm-hmm. and impactful bikepacking route in the world. And it's mm-hmm. basically a dirt road route. It's got some some rough sections on it, but it's mostly dirt roads and gravel roads from southern Canada to Mexico. And it's the more or less what the Tour Divide race follows. And so, mm-hmm. so many folks are familiar with that. And the Continental Divide Trail is, uh, it's an older route 
uh, slightly older than the, the Great Divide mountain bike route, that is more along the lines of uh, what listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail, these yeah. cross-country hiking trails. And the there's three of them, and the Continental Divide being the third of those three. And the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail are both entirely closed to bikes. There's not right. a single mile that that is technically open to bikes on those. And the Continental Divide Trail, on the other hand, is about two-thirds open to bikes. There's uh, the other third is closed, whether it's wilderness areas or recommended wilderness or wilderness study areas or a few other odd sections here and there mm-hmm. uh, that don't that allow bikes on the trail. But the majority of it is open to bikes. It's just ridiculously difficult because it's not actually a bike trail. It's a backcountry hiking trail for the most part. <laughs> yeah. And so there's, there's sections here and there that are super popular with mountain bikers. Maybe not super popular in places, but like in Montana and Idaho, there's some sections that get ridden quite a bit as, as day rides usually. Hmm. There's some some races, like the Butte 100 uses a section of the, the CDT up in Montana. And then in Colorado, the Colorado Trail and the CDT share quite a few miles through the the middle and southern part of the state where the Mm. the trails are more or less contiguous with one another. The CDT sometimes leaves and does some stuff higher up and then comes back to the Colorado Trail again. Mm. Um, Okay. So, yeah. So way more single track. I mean, I think a lot of people are probably surprised to know that the Great Divide route has very little. A friend of mine wrote it a couple of years ago and he said zero miles. There was like absolutely no single track or maybe he said there was like one mile. Or something is that is that accurate? Yeah, I think even even in Tour Divide that incorporates some more single track in it. There's I don't think there's anything more than fifteen or twenty miles of single track in wow. twenty seven hundred. So you could <laughs> you could do the Great Divide mountain bike route on a gravel bike. It's just so long and washboarded that it's mm-hmm. kind of abusive to do that. So most people opt for for mountain bikes on that route. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that the Continental Divide Trail has been around for a while, and it's actually a it's a federally designated national scenic trail mm-hmm. uh, that was started in the seventies, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. The the project, the vision for it, uh, is dates back to the I think the early seventies, and then in nineteen seventy eight, it was congressionally designated as a national scenic trail. Mm-hmm. And at that time, mountain biking wasn't really a, a huge thing and so the, right. the the language in the act that designated the trail as a national scenic trail mentions that it's for equestrians and hikers hmm. so that's one of the the ongoing challenges with mountain bike access on it is that because of that enabling act saying it's for hikers and equestrians hmm. that's the the way that it's managed and that a lot of the decisions are, are built around how does any particular decision by land managers impact hikers and equestrians for, first and foremost hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about sort of how the trail is currently managed and administered. And, you know, and despite being around for so long, it looks like there are still even some pretty big gaps around New Mexico. So like, yeah, is this like a federal thing where like people in the government are are working on this and every year like doing things to improve the trail or? Yeah, it's, it's very much an ongoing project. There are some big gaps in it uh, that the the trail well, trail, quote unquote, follows dirt roads or even some short paved sections because it's oftentimes in those areas, it's it's crossing long stretches of private land. Mm. And so there's no 
real easy way to put actual single track in to get it off those roads uh, without land manager approval. And there's a few examples of, of places where the, the BLM has uh, put together agreements with private landowners for the trail to cross land, but there's, I'm only aware of a handful of those. But the trail itself is administered, it's it's on public lands, so the BLM and mostly the, the U.S. Forest Service are the, the agencies behind okay. the trail. And then there's a nonprofit called the Continental Divide Trail Coalition, which kind of grew out of the demise of the Continental Divide Trail Alliance, which was the former nonprofit that supported the trail. Mm. And so they're they're the ones that really are pushing forward on the vision for the trail okay. and working with land managers and uh, doing grant writing to come up with funding. The Forest Service also puts in um, funds from their own uh, budget to work on sections every year. They do their trail crews do a lot of the, the clearing of deadfall mm-hmm. along the trail, which is so important on sections. I mean, I even with all the work for that, I probably carried my bike over 3,000 plus down trees Whoa. along the way. Like there's there's sections with so much beetle kill that mm. it's just miles at a time of trees and piles of trees across the trail. And so sections get cleared every year, but there's not the time or resources to clear all of it every year. And so much mm-hmm. comes down every winter. So, yeah, it really, the land managers are the ones that are doing a lot of the on-the-ground work. There's volunteers in places that do some of the upkeep. The only volunteers I ran into on the trail that were doing any maintenance were mountain bikers that were carrying chainsaws to, to clear sections. And so they're an important piece of it, even though the trail isn't technically for mountain bikers based on that congressional language. Yeah. We're an important part of the, the maintenance, especially in, in Montana, of, of the trail every year. Hmm. Cool. Well, yeah, I mean, so the fact that the trail wasn't originally conceived of as like a mountain bike route, like we weren't even a group back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the language kind of talks about hikers and equestrians. What's like the nonprofits kind of view of bikers at this point? Like, are they just interested in getting anybody to ride the trail and to like experience the trail and use it or are they indifferent or like what's kind of their current thinking on it? Yeah. So, so their first and foremost goal, as I mentioned earlier, is hikers and equestrians. And because the trail isn't finished, they can't justify putting any time or money into anything related to mountain bikes on the trail Mm. because they're, you know, they have to serve the hiker and equestrian. They just want to finish it. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, so many miles of the trail were kind of sections linked together on existing, you know, older, older trails. And so mm-hmm. a lot of those are open to non-motorized use and that includes mountain bikes. And so it's, it's a lot of inherited use uh, or kind of inherited access that mountain bikers enjoy on the trail. Mm-hmm. And the, the CDTC, the, the organization behind the trail, they're very reserved about whether or not mountain bikes should be sharing the trail Mm -hmm. in places because they're very concerned about the impacts of mountain bikes on the hiking experience and the equestrian experience, which is understandable when, Mm -hmm. when the trail is specifically stated to be for those user groups and not for, for mountain bikers. And so when I was kind of starting to share, I think it was like last fall that I was planning on riding the trail, shared that on social media, I got a, a message from someone that works at the CDTC wondering if it might be helpful to put together some resources for bike packers hmm. for like, what are some of the, the best sections to ride? Because the reality is yeah. very few people are ever going to set out to try to ride the whole thing or the bike legal version of the whole CDT. It's just, mm-hmm. it's so demanding and so time consuming. And I mean, in the history, I think I'm the fourth person to have done ridden the whole thing. Wow. So yeah. that's that kind of with how popular bike packing has become that 
that's yeah. a, an impressive that's number yeah. to emphasize just how how tough the trail is and how it's not something that is just drawing bike packers toward it. But pretty quickly in the conversations around uh putting together some kind of best of sections, it turned out that the CDTC was really concerned with making sure that there weren't going to be ways that that an increase, potential increase in bike use was going to negatively impact hikers. And so I ended up doing a bunch of data collection on the trail, working in consultation with the CDTC to look at things like what are sight lines on any section of the trail? What are speeds of bikes on the trail? What's the like if you think about the trail itself, the tread, how sustainable is it? Is it going to hold up to bike use, which is actually kind of if it holds up to horse use, it should hold up to bike use yeah. and vice versa. But collecting a bunch of data on those sorts of things so that there's actually data that can be used in the decision making around like, well, is this a section that is acceptable for for bike use? And there are sections out there that, you know, the trail isn't going to stand up to a whole bunch of bike use or sections that have really poor sight lines and are fast, like buff trail that riders can carry a lot of speed on. Interestingly, the worst of those were mostly in the Breckenridge, Colorado area <laughs> on sections that are super popular with mountain bikers yeah. and are very poorly maintained in terms of brushing the trail and helping with sight lines. So th that's interesting that hmm. I think a lot of the decisions are the organizations based in Colorado. And so a lot of the decisions made are based on the sections of trail that they're intimately familiar with. And some of those in Colorado were, I think, the least safe for shared use. And yet those are the sections that see the most shared use of mm. any of it. So I was, I was surprised to see that. Yeah. Sections in Montana that are like back in the middle of nowhere that see very little use other than through hikers on them. Those sections of trail, I mean, some of those had site like brushed to a six foot corridor, huh. fantastic sight lines, wow. low speeds. Cause it's so technical that, you know, a lot of the time I was moving at, you know, five miles an hour, which <laughs> is like the speed of a trail runner. Right. So not a high yeah. speed, <laughs> it's not yeah. a high speed trail in general. Interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, this kind of ties back to a uh, conversation we had is back in 2020, actually on the podcast here. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the need for bike packers to be prepared and also to be responsible riders. Mm -hmm. And, and then just a couple years ago, or I guess it was a year and a half ago, 2022, the tour divide, uh, about a dozen riders had to be rescued mm -hmm. uh, during the race due to snow. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, what does it mean to be a responsible bikepacker, <laughs> especially when, yeah, we know that there are these other groups that maybe like they see us as responsible or not responsible. Like mm -hmm. what, what should we be doing? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is it, it all comes around decision-making and, you know, knowing what you're getting into in terms of whether it's the difficulty of a trail how that fits in with your own abilities, what the weather is going to be like. I mean, and that was that was what happened in, in that issue of Tour Divide was yeah. it was super early on in the race, like day, I think it was like starting day three or something like that. Yeah. Like the weather yeah. forecast Still had called, yeah, had, had called for a major winter storm, like very late season winter storm mm -hmm. coming through with snow and wind and cold. And that was the kind of thing, if you pay attention to the weather forecast, you know, it's coming. Like you can plan accordingly, <laughs> yeah. especially if it's at the beginning of the race, right. you can even carry more clothing. Like one year I raced tour divide. That was what the forecast called for. And mm -hmm. I remember shopping around in Banff in the outdoor stores, trying to find some, you know, down jacket <laughs> on clearance that I could afford yeah. and take that along and then mail it home a week into the race when I didn't need it anymore. Right. But there was a lot of, I think in that edition, poor decision-making with, people in race mode and like race mindset being like, I need to keep going. I need, you know, mm -hmm. it's a race. I can't stop and wait this out for a day. <laughs> right. And 
you know, I think I think racing brings out the worst in decision making in folks a lot of times. Yeah. Right. You justify a lot of behavior because, yeah, you're like, I'm. this is a competition, so I got to do whatever it takes. Yeah. And I think in the the real world, the non-race world, when people are out, it's so much easier to look at a weather forecast or listen to somebody that's like, yeah, there's eight miles of deadfall up ahead. Like, that's going to take a while if you're going to drag your bike through it yeah. and make safer decisions around that. And so I think, yeah, there's the the preparedness part, which I think most bike packers do pretty well with making sure that they have what they need in terms of gear, food, shelter, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. When you're in race mode, it's much easier to to skimp on a lot of that. And, you know, people that were in that race that, that had bivvies, that was, that was a bad situation in heavy snow. Mm-hmm. And folks that thought that their rain gear was waterproof when it actually wasn't waterproof because it was, yeah. you know, like ultra, ultra light, you know, kind of trail runner, or ultra runner type rain gear that isn't actually waterproof. <laughs> so things like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good advice. And, you know, the other part that I'm curious about is like, how did you approach sections of the trail that go through wilderness areas where bikes aren't allowed? Yeah. You mentioned that about two thirds, I think of the route is bike legal. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, what do you do about the sections that aren't bike legal? Yeah. So, so when, um, Scott Morris and Esther Haraney were the first ones to ride the, the CDT, and this was 10 years ago now, nine years ago, back in 2014, and I, they blogged about it along the way and shared photos. And I followed along because I'd already wanted to ride the trail at that point, even though I didn't know exactly what it entailed. And well, Scott Nestor showed exactly what it entails and how hard it is and how challenging it is to figure out even what sections are open and closed to bikes. Like there's no resource you can go to and be like, oh, this section's open, this section's closed. Here's where you need to get off the trail. And so so Scott and Esther really struggled through that at times on the trail. Like they'd just get to a place and there was a no bike sign. It's like, well, mm. well what's what's the deal here? Yeah. And then they'd have to backtrack and find a way around. And so even with all the homework they did, they they struggled with that a bit. And so they they mostly defaulted to the Great Divide mountain bike route for okay. detours around the wilderness. That usually the two routes are like they crisscross each other. So they're they're usually not that far apart. And you can usually find a way to get down onto the the dirt roads of the Great Divide route and, and hop around. Hmm. There's a, a few really long stretches like the Bob Marshall Wilderness in northern Montana, which is one of the largest wilderness areas in the lower 48. There's one in southern Colorado in the, the San Juans and South San Juan mm-hmm. area that is a pretty long stretch that's the, just a very large wilderness area. And then some, mm-hmm. what is I guess, the Yellowstone National Park section, which is also entirely closed to bikes. That's another big one. Okay. And so, so they defaulted to basically hopping on roads and taking those. And for better or worse, when I was planning the route out, my trip out, I was like, I want to try to take as much trail as possible around these wilderness areas. (laughs) (laughs) What that meant was a lot of the time I ended up on these backcountry trails that turned out to see way less use than even the CDT. Mm. So very faint trails, very rugged, very seldom, I don't want to say poorly maintained, they're just rarely maintained. Yeah. And so even like right at the start of the, the ride, you have to take, take roads around Glacier Park. And then I hopped on CDT for like 10 miles and it was glorious. And I was on, you know, the start of my trip on CDT miles and then mm-hmm. immediately had to hop off again after 10 miles to get around the Bob Marshall. And it was, I think it was only like 200 miles or something, but it took five and a half days for me to Whoa. follow my detour around the east side of the Bob Marshall. And they were, 
it's absolutely amazing terrain over there. Like it's where the, the Rockies hit the Great Plains and it's that whole section of the Rocky Mountain front are just these enormous limestone palisades, and like a stair-step series of cliffs with big canyons carved back into them. Wow. And it's, I mean, the landscape is beautiful and there's all these north-south trails through the the drainages just west of the plains and you can't quite connect all the way through there's little bits of wilderness and private property that block kind of through access there Mm -hmm. but you can link it together with some dirt road out in the plains but some of those trails were so faint and i mean like grizzly bears were the primary trail user which is not (laughs) not an ideal situation (laughs) and there's one section where on paper there's there's trail there's like a dotted line that shows an official forest service trail and i got mm-hmm. there and it goes literally up a cliff and there's no sign of any trail whatsoever Whoa. and so that was one where i was kind of committed to getting through that section and i knew there was good trail just a couple miles ahead that uh-huh. a friend of mine was like just a couple one miles. of the best descents i did it as an out and back i don't know if the trail cuts through and yeah. the trail did not continue through and so oh, man. that was a like take my bike apart and make three trips scrambling up this cliff with like bags and a wheel and then my frame and then another wheel and then (laughs) continue on. And it was a ridiculous way to start the trip. And I think at the end of that like five day stretch, I I remember very vividly like at dusk coming in to an intersection where I hit the actual official CDT Mm -hmm. and I was on this faint trail. I'd carried my bike on my back up through this burn area up a steep slope and then bounced along on this ridgeline on a really rocky trail and hit this like buff ribbon of single track covered in hiker footprints. Hmm. And I was like, whoa, this is going to be easy now that I'm actually on the official yeah. CDT. And that was a that was a big relief to get onto that. And it I mean, it was still quite demanding and quite hard trail, but it was like actually a trail yeah. instead of a faint you know, little looking, looking for the indentation in the brush where you're pushing through, yeah. trying to follow this, this old backcountry route. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're, you're someone who doesn't like to backtrack. Is that, <laughs> is that fair to say? Like, are you like, you're just commit and you're like, I'm going through here. However I can get through it. Yeah. I tend to be strangely committed to a route once I put it together. Hmm. And this, this, that one in, in particular, I had mapped that connection out like three years ago as part of a loop I wanted to ride around the Bob Marshall wilderness, Mm -hmm. that trip fell through. And then I was going to try it again and got shut down by weather a second time last year. And so this was one that I just stared at on maps for years. I was like, this has to go. It's got to be a good connection. And then there's also a part of me that's just always thinking about like the future of, of bikepacking routes. And if that actually, like if 90% of that route or 95% of that section linking through the east side of the Bob Marshall was really good. And there's just like one terrible section that didn't actually have trail anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's going to have promise in the long term, that might be something that resources could actually be put toward like reconstructing and restoring that old trail. Mm. And right. turns out that I don't think that would be worth the effort in that case. But now I know that and I don't have yeah. to wonder about it for the next however many years. Yeah. So I, I do get strangely committed to the choices I make. <laughs> yeah. That's that's interesting. So how are the resupply points along the Continental Divide Trail compared to the Great Divide route? Like, are there communities that are kind of like set up to handle the through hikers and people that go through there, like for the Great Divide route? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. Um, The Great Divide, like you can ride the Great Divide mountain bike route probably almost never carrying more than two days worth of food. Like there's resupply options quite frequently along the way and more popping up due to the the popularity of that route, which is amazing to see. Like it's really cool how folks and communities are both embracing the route and 
seeing opportunity for economic development related to that and businesses springing up that are there to serve the, the bike packers mm-hmm. that are coming through. The CDT also has some of that. You know, there's the the hiker traffic is much less. Like I think last last year there were something like 400 through hikers that completed the whole thing. Wow. So it's it's a fairly small number. It's pretty quiet out on the trail overall. Yeah. But that being said, the the communities that the trail passes through are more often the the communities that are closest to the trail, since the trail is often like up on the divide proper, there aren't really many communities up there. And so most hikers end up hitchhiking off to towns that are, you know, five or 10 miles away to resupply. Mm, And there aren't really businesses in those places in general that have sprung up to support the trail, but there are oftentimes stores that very much listen to what the through hikers need. Like, oh, we can stock fuel canisters for you, you all? Cool. Freeze-dried meals? Yeah, we can get those. Yeah. And so there, a lot of stores have like a little kind of hiker section, hmm. which is really cool to see. Yeah. Uh, and so they're, they're, the, those communities are definitely starting to see, see the ways to support the hiking community. And the one, I think, really nice element of having the all the wilderness bypasses and detours that I had to take along the way is usually those ended up at some point going through towns. And so I didn't actually head off, like truly off route more than a handful of times to resupply. Hmm. Most of the time it was on those those bypasses that I would go through a town and be able to to get food. And I, I think I'd say on average, I was probably leaving those towns with like three and a half days worth of food. And there were a few stretches, probably four or five that were like five plus days of food, which is a lot okay. to carry on a yeah. like summer bike packing setup on a full suspension bike. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was eating what, like 4,500 to 5,000 calories a day. So that's like 20 uh, or I don't know what, 18 pounds of food or something like wow. that. Probably that's, when you leave, yeah, maybe, maybe 16 pounds, up. something like that. It's yeah, it's a lot to cram in Man. and a lot of weight for that first, I don't know, two days after, after grabbing that much. Yeah, for sure. Well, what's like one section of the ride that you wish you could go back and do without <laughs> all the heavy gear and, and everything on your bike? That's a that's a really good question. The the first that comes to mind immediately is also one of the hardest sections of the trail, but it was just stunning terrain. It was up in it's along the Idaho Montana border in the southwestern part of this of Montana. I mean, Salmon Idaho is like the closest town, so this is up to the okay. just above Salmon to the east, and it's the the Beaverhead Mountains. It's a stretch that's a, it was five days to traverse that whole bit. Most of it's up on ridgeline or just like traversing peaks below below the, the summits a little ways really beautiful riding but with five days of food to start that that was so much work because that <laughs> i mean on that stretch i was doing probably 40 miles a day is what i was able to average moving all day and that was with oh, man. eight thousand feet of climbing or so a day Whoa. in that so ton of vertical ton of really hard trail but like the kind of hard trail that's actually if you have energy, it's mostly rideable hmm. other than the steep climbs. Interesting. So I was having a great time, but I was just worked from how demanding that section was with a loaded bike and the section before that that had just tired me out. And then also the bugs were horrendous on that stretch. Like the uh, biggest swarms of mosquitoes I've seen in the lower 48. Like they were <laughs> really bad. So I would love to go back and ride that in the fall when the bugs are yeah. gone on an unloaded bike. <laughs> that part would be so fun. And I think every state had a section 
that was was like that that was just a highlight that without the weight would be so good with the weight it's good but just work like in mm-hmm. Colorado there was a stretch that I had never been on before that's like just outside of Salida and like the Monarch Crest Trail it's a super mm-hmm. famous one well there's also yeah. a stretch that I guess on trail forks people call it the Monarch Crest North it's just literally on the other side of Monarch Pass from mm-hmm. where everybody starts riding. Yeah. And there's a long hike a bike, like a bike on the back hike a bike to get up to the ridge crest there. Mm-hmm. But it's up through this gorgeous cirque, like talus covered cirque with these little ponds. And then you get up on the ridge line and you're just up on the ridge crest above tree line, meandering around for like six miles or so. So headed wow. down toward Monarch Pass. And that stretch and the stuff that came before it was really, really good. Just mm. again, quite demanding on a loaded bike so that and that part you can do as a day ride like you literally could loop it or shuttle it from um like ending at monarch pass Hmm. as a kind of a demanding but reason semi-reasonable day ride yeah yeah that sounds like a good one to check out because like you said a lot of people are familiar with the traditional monarch crest route and a lot of people Mm -hmm. are will go up there have been many times and so yeah it'd be cool to check out the other side of the trail Yep. So one of the things that's kind of in the news has been in the news the last year or so is the Biking on Long Distance Trails Act or BOLT. Yeah. Uh, how is this? Will this help the Continental Divide Trail? And and what's like kind of the, the latest status of the legislation? Yeah. So so the BOLT Act is one that uh, I guess in really quick summary, the the purpose of the act is to help encourage and compel land managers, the BLM and the Forest Service, mm-hmm. to put a focus on long distance trails for cycling. Okay. And Bikepacking Roots was very involved with the kind of the the crafting of the language. And it's it's interesting. The Bolt Act itself, I don't even know how long ago it was written, but it was literally pulled out of a file cabinet from like a paper <laughs> version of pulled out of a file Whoa. cabinet from what I was told like two years ago and it, you know, it already existed and folks were, were looking at options for supporting outdoor recreation Mm -hmm. on public lands that came back out. It was like, Oh, Oh, this was a cool idea. Let's, let's look into this again. Who started it? And I don't remember who was involved in the early crafting of it, but Hmm. lately it's been bikepacking routes, IMBA, people for bikes and adventure cycling have all been working together on trying to move it forward. And Mm -hmm. the, Bikepacking Roots submitted a bunch of suggestions for modifying the language because it was very loose originally. It could have been like rail trails, like paved rail trails would have been covered. Um, Gravel roads actually could have been incorporated in that also. And we were really trying to hone it toward being focused more on single track. Okay. Yeah. Because like those, you can put together great long distance gravel routes without land manager involvement mm-hmm. and you can put together great like backcountry jeep road and four by four road bike packing routes and long distance trails without land manager involvement but you can't do that with single track like you need land managers to be on board and need to be working with them so we kind of work to shift it in that direction to get the most benefit out of out of what was being proposed mm-hmm. and the act says or, or the language in it is basically half being put toward existing long distance trails and okay. trying to either resurrect them or complete them, like whatever the, the situation might be with those. And then the other half, which I think the number is another 10 would be new long distance trails. Mm, okay. So that, uh, I'm not sure exactly where it stands at the moment. It had made it through committee last year in the Senate and then things fell apart this year. It's been working through house committee 
and it's been incorporated in another bigger public lands package. Mm. And there's there's been no voiced opposition to the Bolt Act. Every time it comes up for a vote, right. it yeah. goes through, or it doesn't even get to a vote, it just goes, goes through on voice, yeah. voice approval. And the bigger public lands package also hasn't been very controversial. It's just there's been so much more going on in Congress that has kind of <laughs> yeah. distracted from that. <laughs> it's not a priority for them, even though it should be. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Imba uh, and has a, a policy person in Washington that's been the one really working hard to just keep that at the forefront of, of people's attention and keep trying to get folks to move it forward. And so I'm confident it will will pass uh, at some point. There's just so much else that is distracting Congress from, from things like <laughs> right. that. Right. And so... Uh, there's there's a number of different trails that we've outlined that could really existing trails could really benefit from some of that work. One like the Paradox Trail in Western Colorado is a fantastic yeah. uh, candidate for that. That's been around for a while. Needs some love. Could be phenomenal. Um, the Madahe Trail in North Dakota is another fantastic long distance route that's got just some a little wilderness issue on the northern end. Yeah, that's that, on my list uh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, it's it's like 150 miles of think 149 of the 150 miles of single track. Mm, it's got to yeah. be the longest continuous stretch of single track in the country as far as I'm oh, aware wow. that's open to bikes. Yeah. There's just one little section on the north end that <laughs> is closed to bikes. And um, the, the Save the Matahe organization is working hard to try to find solutions for hmm. for that little bit so that you don't have to bypass on, on dirt roads. Yeah, And the CDT is a complicated one because there are sections like northern New Mexico it's become a fairly popular section to bike pack. There's like a three day bit, like I think it's like 90 miles or so mm -hmm. that very quiet trail, very few trail users and very rideable overall for, for mountain bikers. And so it's mm -hmm. a, it's a really reasonable section, but because the congressional language for the trail is specific, specifying that it's for hikers and equestrians, mm -hmm. anything congressional being done to, you know, emphasize it as a bike or bike travel on that trail mm -hmm. is going to be a bit controversial. And so I yeah. don't think the Bolt Act is going to be something that directly pertains to bike access or bike use or maintenance mm -hmm. on the CDT, which is unfortunate because the CDT could use basically all the support that it could find for, for maintenance and yeah. uh, continuing to, to just keep the trail in, in good shape and address some of those, those sections that are gaps still. Hmm. Yeah. Is the Bolt Act, I mean, is there like funding associated with this or is it all just like, let's just clear kind of the red tape and make it easier to, to designate? Yeah, there's no funding for it, which because there's no, it's not scored by the congressional or the, the budget office mm -hmm. for that kind of implication. That's why it's not controversial. Like nobody's saying, <laughs> like, oh, this should Come be a priority. On, guys. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so what it will ultimately end up doing is when it passes, it will open up the opportunity for organizations like IMBA, like Bikepacking Roots, like ACA to work with land managers. And likely it's going to be the nonprofits that are doing a lot of the heavy lifting initially to mm -hmm. come up with prioritizing what these different trails are, what their needs are, and identifying some of the, the potential candidates for new trail development in the long mm -hmm. term. And so that's going to be a huge opportunity for both kind of national organizations like ours and then uh, more regional or local organizations to start to work together and look at like what what is there out there for opportunities to link up things and I think the I think the threshold that 
that's included in, in the language is like 70 miles is kind of okay. beyond that is considered long distance. So we're not talking necessarily cross country, yeah, like across the country tra- mm-hmm. trail <laughs> yeah. that could yeah. like the Orogenesis route, which is a, it's a, a bikepacking routes project and there's, it's going to have its own nonprofit behind it to support it mm-hmm. ultimately. But it's uh, basically a, a mountain bike specific route that parallels the Pacific Crest Trail. So all the way down yeah. the, the West Coast. And that, you know, that's a fantastic candidate for this. And that's got so many sections in the middle that are Mm -hmm. also very good candidates in themselves for like, let's Mm. finish this trail. Let's connect these two trail networks together with a section there. So there's even ways on these like big cross country visions to scale them down into, you know, small projects Mm. that would be very easy to kind of fit into what the goals of the Bolt Act are. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome to think about the potential for that. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully it passes soon. Yes. Agreed. So getting back to the, your continental divide trail ride, were you surprised that it took you three months to do this or like, (laughs) no, was that what you had budgeted? You figured, you figured it would take that long when I was trying to estimate how long it would take. And like I had Scott Nestor's ride to look at from from years ago, and I think it took them about four months total. But they took some time off along the way to work, and they had to take. I think they took like two weeks off in southern Colorado to just wait for snow to melt <laughs> before they continued farther north. And so theirs was a little less continuous. And then Aaron Weinsheimer wrote it uh, two years after Scott Nestor did, mm-hmm. and he he took like two days off. I think the entire trip, like he mm. rode incredibly steadily, and I think he did it in a little over three months, like maybe three months and a week or something like that. Mm. And so his, his, I knew I was going to stop and like take more days off than he did. And that I probably would maybe cover a little bit more miles on average than he did his, Mm -hmm. I think when I was emailing back and forth with him, he was like, yeah, I don't ride fast. I don't move fast at all. I just (laughs) move from like an hour before sunrise to dark or something like that every Mm -hmm. day. Yeah. <laughs> so he was the, you know, very steady, <laughs> slow and steady, steady, slow approach. Yeah. And amazingly, he just finished hiking the CDT, I think last week. Oh, wow. And I saw him a couple of times out on the trail this summer, which was fantastic. But he's now the only person to have ridden and hiked the trail. Whoa. So he's which took a, longer? It took him, I think, four and a half months or so oh, to geez, hike it. To hike it. Oh, so, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. The FKT for on foot self-support on the trail is something like two and a half months. So... Wow. Somebody this summer hiked it in two weeks less than it took me to ride the whole thing. So <laughs> that's very impressive. Wow. Uh, but yeah, when I was planning it out, I had those to go off. And then I was just trying to estimate like daily mileage. What can I expect mm-hmm. for how far to cover? And I think initially I was thinking, well, maybe 45 to 50 miles a day. Like, I'll, I'll settle on 50 and build my itinerary around that. And then I was talking to my teammate, Kate, who uh, has ridden lots of sections of the CDT also. And we've done a lot of trips together in the past. And she's like, I think you should plan on more like 40 miles a day. (laughs) And she's oftentimes like a voice of reason for me in, in that sort of thing. And so it's like, okay, let me, I'll redo my itinerary on 40 miles a day, which Mm. in my head is like, man, 40 miles a day riding all day. Is it really going to be that slow? Mm. And it was really that slow. Like if I think I probably averaged 45 miles a day in, I haven't done the math to see, what it comes out to like riding days versus total mileage. And there were days where it was, you know, faster terrain or more two track or something that I was able mm-hmm. to do 60 and a couple of the, the dirt road detour sections. I think one, I had one day that was 80 miles and that was my biggest day. And mm-hmm. I had some that were all single track and 35 was an all day effort that left me completely spent at the end. Yeah. So wow. planning around 40 miles a day actually worked out pretty perfectly. 
Yeah. Well, like you said too, I mean, obviously one, this wasn't a race and mm-hmm. two, um, part of what you were doing is you were doing this trail assessment. So, mm-hmm. um, you kind of mentioned some of the things you were looking for, like what, what are you going to do with the data you collected and like, how are you presenting this back and like making, making that information helpful for folks? Yeah. So, so that turned into a project that bikepacking roots was supporting and the, at this point, we have all the raw data and haven't gotten to doing any of the analysis, but there's some some really fun stuff I'm excited to do with looking at speeds, just like what is the average speed for different sections of the trail? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if we're talking about trails being the concern being around high speed bike use or tra- mm-hmm. traffic on the trail, it's like it's not a high speed trail. <laughs> if I'm doing 40 miles a day and seeing the same hikers multiple times in a day, uh-huh. I'm not moving very quickly. Oh, yeah. You're like leapfrogging um, them. I guess yeah. along the yep. way. Wow. Huh. Yep. Yeah. I, you know, that there's the, the common scenario of coming up behind hikers and, you know, just on a, on day ride anywhere and having to slow down and let them know mm-hmm. that you're there. And so often just your voice startles them. Mm-hmm. I had my first example of a hiker coming up behind me <laughs> on the trail and startling me. <laughs> like on your right, so, you're like, where I did can't you come? any. <laughs> yeah. Where did you come from? I looked back a bit ago and there was no one there. How are you oh, moving that goodness. much faster than I am? Wow. But yeah, so so just going culling through all the data and uh, trying to come to some some general uh, conclusions from it, and then figuring out how to present it in a way. And the um, the there's a Forest Service coordinator for the trail that's like the official public lands contact and and coordinator for the the CDT, and he's really interested in seeing the results from from what he shared on a, a phone call I had with him a while back, mm-hmm. uh, and then talk to some of the the different trail organizations. Uh, on sections of the trail that are really fascinated to see see what it looks like. So I think just planning on trying to to share the data in a sort of a public way to to show like, hey, here's an example of a very very backcountry trail, and this is what bike use looks like on it. This is how many hikers that you know hikers and equestrians I encountered along the way in different mm-hmm. sections of it. How many bikers we saw out there, and like the numbers are so low. I think on the whole trail, I probably saw maybe. 80 or 90 CDT through hikers, hmm. probably another like 50 Colorado trail through hikers Okay, and a couple dozen day hikers saw two equestrians on the entire hmm. trail and probably 50 mountain bikers, something hmm. like that, yeah. which if you add up the and motorized users on sections, also like probably 40, 40 moto riders and a bunch of side by sides in hmm. eight yeah. quads in places and not counting any of the like dirt roads that have just vehicle traffic, regular vehicle traffic on them. Hmm. But yeah. from the standpoint of a 3000 mile long trip, those numbers were so small. I mean, like <laughs> New Me- right. I saw like three hikers in New Mexico, for example. So, so, so I think sharing some of that to, so folks just have a better idea and land managers just have a better idea of just what does use on this trail look like? Because there's so uh, I think so little awareness of just who's out there and how many people mm-hmm. are out there and that sort of thing. And then also sections of trail that have maintenance needs, deadfall. Like there's a few uh, mountain bike type or mountain bikers that are very excited to support deadfall clearing mm-hmm. on the trail. And like Corey Biggers is a guy that <laughs> looks up use those chainsaws. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So Corey is a guy up in in Montana that spent a couple decades as a very active trail advocate, went to Washington to advocate for access and continued access on backcountry trails. And that wore him out. And now he just 
uses his chainsaw and clears. Mm. He coordinates uh, clearing of sections of the CDT up in Montana that, I mean, one one section alone, he coordinates a thousand volunteer hours Whoa. of deadfall clearing every wow. year on Jeez. that. And that time that they put in was a critical factor in a Forest Service decision like two years ago when that part of the, the route was considered being considered for a recommended wilderness area. Mm-hmm. And it's a very small kind of contained spot. It would have been a very small recommended wilderness area, but the Forest Service supervisor in that area looked at just what the maintenance history was on that section of trail and how much time the mountain bike community has put into it. And that was a key factor in her decision to decide that it shouldn't be recommended wilderness and gave it a different special designation of, uh, I think it's an official forest service backcountry area. So mm-hmm. different regulations allows continued use of mountain bikes on it, allows mountain bikers to continue to maintain the trail with chainsaws, that sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, sharing more about all of that and sections that, that need, need maintenance, um, is, is another goal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, a lot of the trail is, is not very heavily trafficked by, Bikers, especially, but even by hikers and other user groups. Um, but I still wonder, like, is there outside concern from folks about like you talking about this trip and publicizing it and and making it sound fun and cool? Like, are they worried that <laughs> like it's going to get overrun with with bikers? Has anybody said that to you? Not really. No, I don't. Okay. I mean, the hikers I ran into along the trail, I was shocked at how excited so many were to see me. I think <laughs> just to see anybody, they were yeah, like, yeah, to see cow, someone out there, see someone on a bike. They're like, wait, you're yeah. riding what I'm hiking. Hmm. Wow. That's awesome. And I think I ran into a, about a dozen through hikers that were also bike packers mm-hmm. and another probably dozen that were cyclists just mm. out on, on foot all summer doing yeah. something different from cycling. And so from that group, like those folks w- were very welcoming to mm. me as a, a bike packer and mountain biker yeah. out on the trail. So that was really good to see because I'd been a little concerned about what that kind of acceptance might be. And mm-hmm. I had one yeah. person that maybe was unhappy with me or maybe they were just <laughs> having a rough afternoon. Like I really couldn't tell. It just yeah. mostly seemed like they didn't want to talk, mm-hmm. uh, which is I had afternoons like that, that I wouldn't have wanted to talk if I ran into right. someone. So, right. <laughs> yeah. So I think, and I'm trying to be very, very clear about how challenging and demanding sections are and that it's not for most folks. Like most mountain bikers wouldn't enjoy a lot of sections of the trail. That's just the reality of it. It's never going to be. But you saying that they won't enjoy it is making a lot of people go, hmm, yeah, but I would. I'm tough. Like, I, I love I love a good technical trail. It's possible. And yeah. I think that there are concerns that have been voiced that like, oh, if there's more bikes on the trail, it's going to become the Monarch Crest everywhere, mm-hmm. which is just kind of a ridiculous assertion because, yeah. like, yes, that's that trail has very considerable user conflict or has a history of user conflict mm-hmm. and unhappy yeah. folks on it. But so much of that is because in the past, they're just like hikers expectations were different that they didn't know that it was a super busy stretch with motos mm-hmm. and with mountain bikers. Yeah. And so if you get to a place and suddenly you're there on like a Saturday afternoon and being passed by hundreds of mountain bikers, like, yeah, I'd be unhappy <laughs> with that. Yeah. But if I knew that was coming, that puts you in a very different mindset. Like it right. still might not be enjoyable, but at least you're not being shocked by it. Right. And there have been conflicts in the past with motos and mountain bikers on that trail. And mm-hmm. like, it's just, it's a super popular trail. That's Colorado has so many people that yeah. want to all be out on the trails that it's yep. a big, big issue. And then that one has commercial shuttle companies that have permits to right. take people up 
to the top and send them back down. So yeah. that one, like, that's a pretty exceptional case. And one of the things I was looking at on, on the trail was like, what other options, what other section of the trail could be shuttled in mm. like a gravity oriented ride like that? And there are so few yeah, that could be. there's several descents off of there. there yeah, there's a, there's a few options for sections of CDT that could be shuttled in that way, but most mm. of them are so far from any population centers that like it's just it's never going to be popular like yeah. in the beaverheads in montana like it's not going to be a destination for shuttle rides so mm. i think yeah i think on lots of sections of the trail there is room for an increase in trail users of all types and i think a lot of sections of the trail would benefit from increases in use just because the trail is so faint so rough so poorly maintained that it like it just needs tires it needs footprints these people on horses, like all of those will actually help the the trail. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So I want to talk briefly about your bike setup for this. And mm-hmm. I imagine it's, it's different from what you would use for the great divide route. And Very, it looks yeah. like you, you rode a full suspension bike mm-hmm. uh, for the trip. Was that, was that a good call? Like, would you, if you did it again? Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So I rode a um, pivot shadow cat, which is a, uh, 140 mil travel in the rear end bike mm-hmm. and i have mine set up as a mullet style so 140 okay. front 140 rear and 29 inch front 27.5 rear wheel mm-hmm. and it's this is the only mullet bike i've ever had and for this kind of backcountry riding it is so good that mm. it's really maneuverable at very low speeds which is not what what folks necessarily <laughs> right. are it's often thinking about looking for <laughs> Mm, yeah like you want something that if you're bumping along on super rocky trail at four miles an hour that you can maneuver it quite Mm, precisely and at the same time have something that on really steep descents or higher like which aren't necessarily high speed like super techie descents that Mm -hmm. especially in the backcountry when you're far from anything like you're not taking high risk at all so speeds are generally pretty low for that reason as well but on super steep stuff you want something that's confident and able to deal with really rocky you know backcountry hiking trail not Mm -hmm. bike trails and then also at high speed you know if you are on flowy trails it's nice to have a bike that also feels really stable and comfortable at, at those and this bike in that setup checked all those boxes and hmm. it's, you know, the bike I race on or do, do bikepacking ultras on is a, a Pivot Mach 4 SL. Doesn't have those same capabilities. Like, it's yeah. phenomenal for... But still a full suspension bike. I mean, I yep. think that's that's yeah. pretty rare for bikepacking. I think most people don't do that. I mean, partly, I guess, because of the bags, but... Yeah, I think that's a big factor. So, And I get so many questions like, why do you always bikepack on a full suspension bike? It's <laughs> like, well, I almost always ride on rough trails. Uh-huh. And full suspension bikes are just so much more fun and so much more forgiving and so much safer. Like you have, Mm -hmm. have room for error and the bike saves you with that suspension sometimes. So all of those are big factors for it. But, um, I mean, if I had to do it again, I would take the exact same, same setup I did. Mm. Like it was fantastic for that. Yeah. And I imagine you're, you're running higher pressures in the suspension than you would otherwise because of the bags. What about sag though? Like, are you, are you getting the same amount of sag or are you doing a little less? The front fork, I actually set up a little bit differently, both pressure and I usually run, so I have a Fox 30, what is it? 34 Mm -hmm. on that bike. And so I run that with one, one token Mm -hmm. normally for my regular riding. And then for bike packing, I take that token out and mm. run higher pressure but 
that setup just makes it feel a little bit more compliant and you're not riding quite as aggressively and like mm-hmm. I'm not jumping off stuff. And so I don't have the big hits that I might uh, on an unloaded bike. And so yeah. taking that token out lets me use the full travel more, more easily mm-hmm. without the, you know, the aggressive um, riding. So I think that rear, the rear, I leave the the spacer, same volume spacer inside okay. and just run slightly higher pressure and about the same amount of sag that hmm. I normally would. So about 30, yeah, interesting. 30 to 35%. Yeah. Yeah. What about brakes? Same brakes or like, do you, do you go bigger rotors a little more? On this trip, I use the same. I've done some, some bike packing in the Alps where you have like huge, like 6,000 foot descents. And those I've usually gone to a big, like the biggest rotor I can put in the front. Um, but I just ran regular one eighties, which is my normal, normal setup for, for this. And I think that I would actually contemplate running a bigger rotor. If I did this again, there were, were some descents that were Mm. steep enough and long enough that I did end up with, with things overheating a bit and yeah, but it's not, not the end of the world. You have to stop and let things cool and just stop and eat a snack. <laughs> right on. Yeah. It's a good way to look at it. So when we chatted the last time, you said that the, that a camera is actually your most important piece of bike packing <laughs> gear. So I'm curious. Um, well, I mean, one, yeah. Did you take a lot of photos and, and two, what kind of camera setup do you bring for such a long ride? Yeah. So I did take a lot of photos on this trip and you know, that's part with, I do some freelance writing, sharing photography with sponsors is a big, big part of my job. Mm-hmm. And so just, and I also have a lot of fun taking photos along the way. So mm-hmm. I think it's a fun distraction from <laughs> always needing to be moving forward or always feeling like I need to be moving forward and just like yeah. a different way of thinking about things when I look around where I'm riding. And so I had a, what is it? It's a Sony a6300. So kind of it's not not a full-size dslr but a smaller kind of mid-size camera body mm-hmm. and uh tamron 20 what is it a 28 to 200 lens Whoa. so fairly sounds sizable. like a big lens yeah it is fairly sizable it's the same i rode the iditarod trail across alaska in march and i took that exact same setup for that and loved it there mm. and so i was really debating like should i bring the bigger lens on this one or should i bring something smaller and in the end i was like i loved it there i'm just going to take this again and on the trail, every time I, I, you know, I talked to most of the hikers I ran into and sometimes I'd ask if I t- could take a picture of them mm-hmm. and I'd pull my camera out and every <laughs> single hiker was like, whoa, you brought a real camera. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, it, it was definitely heavy. It, I, I didn't weigh it until I got home. I hadn't ever weighed it and it's a solid two pounds uh, for that. That's, that's for that less than setup. I thought. I thought it'd be like a five pounder. <laughs> no, it's not that bad, but two still. It's yeah, it take, took up some precious space and was felt heavy at times to have, but I was glad to have it the whole time. Where do you put it? Like, I'm worried for that kind of stuff that the lens is going to get just bounced around too much. And Yeah. So I'll on trail, I pretty much always have it in my backpack unless it's a long mm. climb. Okay. And yeah, yeah. two pounds, I can actually, it's pretty obvious if it's in your backpack or if you take it out. Mm-hmm. And so I had a little handlebar, like a pocket on the front of my handlebar roll mm-hmm. the handlebar roll has like my sleep kit and everything and then I had a little pocket out front that if i was on single track usually had something like potato chips in there like <laughs> some pretty lightweight but bulky and then if i was on jeep road or dirt road or just a long climb i'd usually put the camera in that and okay. you definitely feel that with the handling of the bike mm-hmm. with the weight yeah. out front like that but on climbs it was nice to just not have that weight on my back and my butt so it mm-hmm. kind of the camera migrated back and forth between those and i think it's also much safer like if it's on your back, it's insulated from so much of the vibration that I think mm-hmm. would normally be really hard on right. lenses. Yeah, yeah. 
And that being said, I do usually destroy like my lenses stop working after like a year or year and a half of yeah. use, which is probably because of <laughs> what I do with them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's great. I, I just picked up a pro tip. I'm writing that down to like move your stuff around depending what you're doing. Exactly. Like, I think, yep. you know, when I've bike packed, it's like, you know, the food goes in this bag and the water goes here. And that's just where it goes the whole time. But yeah, it makes sense. If you're climbing, you you might want to shift your gear around or descending. And yeah, that's great stuff. Yep, definitely. I do that fairly often. And I think the other the other thing to keep in mind for listeners is there beyond the the notion that like, oh, bikepacking, you should probably bring a hardtail. The other thing I hear from so many folks is that they're surprised that I carry a backpack. And yeah, like I'm I had surprised a, at that. A 20, <laughs> what is it, like a, I think a 21 liter Patagonia backpack. And like I, I have that for, I mean, pretty much any time I go bikepacking on a full suspension bike, I have a backpack mm. and, you know, part of it is the volume. Like you can't yeah, have you as much stuff on a full suspension bike because the, mm -hmm. the frame space is smaller for a frame bag. If you have a dropper post and rear travel, like you can't have a big seat bag on there necessarily. And, but also for on single track, like I just find that the bike handles better if some of the weight is on your back and on mm. backcountry trails, especially when you're off and pushing your bike, like put weight in your backpack. Like you don't need to be pushing all that uphill with your arms. Right. Uh, and so I, you know, I love having a backpack for, for longer trips on single track. Mm. Yeah. You must have strong shoulders, stronger than me. <laughs> <laughs> they've, they've carried a backpack a lot and that definitely has strengthened them. I yeah. also on my back, I think I have some like asymmetrically developed muscles, which I'm pretty <laughs> sure is from all the hike a bike I do and <laughs> having the bike on my right side for all of that uh, pretty much. Yeah. So yeah. Interesting. my body has adapted to, strange demands <laughs> awesome well so what's your next big adventure what else you got planned? oh man i don't i don't know actually which probably isn't the hmm. most enticing answer this year was my goal was a couple big adventures that i had been intimidated by for years which was riding across alaska in the winter and then mm -hmm. the cdt in the summer and so that meant i mean those were two all-consuming adventures mm -hmm. pretty much and there's a stretch, I mean, from like late April until like or early May until I got back from the CDT that I was gone for five months and home for two, two and a half days in mm -hmm. there. So I'm kind of looking forward to just being home for yeah. a little while and yeah. catching up on life. And next year, kind of planning out next year, I think next year I've got more shorter, shorter adventures back to, mm. to more of those sorts of things. Hopefully a little bit more bikepacking in the Alps since it's such a phenomenal place to go go adventuring in a really different setting from what I'm used yeah. to. And then also I'd realized this when I was in New Mexico on the CDT that this year I've done tons of long trips, like in big mountains and in the winter and in kind of like Southern Wyoming and these high, high grassy plains. Mm -hmm. And I've spent so much time bikepacking on the Colorado plateau in like sandstone Canyon country. And I've done mm -hmm. none of that this year and actually yeah. find myself kind of longing for that. Yeah. So it's just kind of doing some of the, the shorter things in, in places that, that I've been missing that I'm excited mm. for. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah, whatever you end up doing, we'll be excited to follow along and cheer you on. And uh, yeah, always interested to, to hear what you're working on. Fantastic. Thanks, Jeff. Well, you can get more information about some of the things we talked about here at bikepackingroots.org and also on Kurt's website, ultramtb.net. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Mm -hmm.